Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Barbara Grutter fancied a career change. 43 years old and the owner of a successful healthcare business, in the mid-90s, she applied to the University of Michigan School of Law with stellar grades. She was rejected. The law school weighted applications to favour minority students in order to ensure a diverse class. Affirmative action in practice. Grutter felt cheated. 30 years ago, as a young woman, I entered a sexist work environment, she later wrote, only to find myself, 25 years later, discriminated against on yet another basis – this time, race. She sued the university, and in 2003, her case, Grutter v. Bollinger, made it to the Supreme Court. In a 5-4 decision, the justices rejected her petition, finding that, in a majority opinion written by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the law school's race-conscious admissions programme does not unduly harm non-minority applicants. Elsewhere in that opinion, Justice O'Connor said she expected that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. Six years ahead of her deadline, affirmative action in college admissions is on the verge of being banned. Would this harm or help the fight for equality? I'm John Prado. This is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, does America still need affirmative action? The Supreme Court has said it will hear two cases challenging race-conscious admissions programs. Last time it did, in 2016, the petition failed. But the current court's conservative supermajority is likely to strike down affirmative action. What difference would a ban on race-conscious admissions make to higher education in America? With me to make sense of this thorny question are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and Idris Kaloon, the Washington correspondent. Idris, you're sitting opposite me at the moment because you're moonlighting as the data editor, so you're not corresponding about Washington at the moment. Are, are you missing DC or are you happy to be in London and having a bit of a break from the Trump-Biden psychodrama? Very happy to be in London. Haven't been able to come here since the pandemic, uh, so it's nice to actually see everyone in human form and not just on Zoom. And I've also missed some pretty terrible weather in DC. So I think all in all, I'm doing better for the trade. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's going on in, in New York? Well, I'm filled with FOMO because not only Idris is in London, but Fasman is there and he's been abducted by his fans. Everything in New York is fine. Um, the governor here is starting to relax mask mandates, but not yet in schools, which I think is a big 
point of controversy for certain segments of the population. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, Fasman's busy with some other economist podcast projects. He will be back next week when I'm off. Okay, but enough of that. Let's talk about the Supreme Court and affirmative action. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Justice Breyer's retirement and President Biden's decision on the campaign trail to say that the post on the Supreme Court would be filled by an African-American woman. And the confluence of that and the fact that the court is going to be reconsidering affirmative action soon seemed to be a good excuse to take another look at this question, uh, which has been a debate in American public policy for, for a long time. Idris, it's something you've written about a fair bit, and you've also written quite a lot about how America could go about narrowing racial disparities. Should we begin just by laying out, maybe for the benefit of non-American listeners, what we mean when we say affirmative action, what kind of institutions it applies to? In America, affirmative action is used in two different ways. The first is used only by federal contractors in which they identify whether or not their workforce looks different from the population and make a plan to affirmatively employ people that represent the population they're aiming for. And the second, which is the one that we're most familiar with, happens at universities and colleges. And in that case, it acts like what economists would call positive discrimination, in which there is a plus in favor of minorities that have been traditionally underrepresented or marginalized in some way. So African-Americans, Hispanics, etc. I thought the colleague I most wanted to hear from on this is our colleague Tamara Jilkspoor, who writes about public policy for The Economist and is particularly interested in education policies and things that affect colleges. She is also somebody who's changed her mind about affirmative action over time. And it's always interesting to hear people when they change their opinions and why. So I spoke to her earlier today and asked her a little bit about what she originally believed on affirmative action and what she thinks now. When I was a teenager, like everybody else, I wanted to fit in. And we would have these discussions about college and and talk about how stressful it was. And we would be worrying about whether or not we would have the right SAT scores and whether or not we should be on the newspaper or whether or not we should be in sports. And we were trying to you know figure out what to do. And when I would chime into these conversations and express my stress, there were times when my my friends would turn to me and say, well, you don't have to worry. You're going to get in everywhere because you're Black. And that really crushed me. I was a really strong academic candidate, and all of my merit was being disregarded because of my race. And I would be looked at as a quote-unquote affirmative action case. And I would not be judged as somebody who was academically equal and deserving of the spot. And you went so far, I think, I recall, in rejecting an Ivy League college because you were suspicious that they might have given you some some extra points because of that, right? I did. I did. I applied to one and I was admitted and at first very excited, but the reaction of my peers was less exciting. My friends were dealing with rejections and I felt suspicious that I was, I had gotten in and some of my friends had not. It was not the only reason I decided not to go, but I felt concerned and my parents were concerned that I felt I didn't deserve to get in. And they did not want me to be in an institution where I felt like I was lesser than compared to my peers. Obviously, that's nonsense in the sense that you're extremely smart. You would have got in anywhere, right? So that was the thing that was in your in your head. But that the argument you've just made is an argument that, that people still make, right? So why did you change your mind? At what point 
did you change your mind on affirmative action? When I got to college, you know, like everybody else, you start to have such a wide, wider experience, such a greater experience about life than you had when you were in your hometown. And I realized that whether I wanted to or not, I was being judged every day for my skin color. I realized also that everyone around me, they got to where they were for a lot of reasons, some merit, some what they've accomplished, but a lot for things that were out of their control. For some people, it's because they grew up wealthy. They have a well-connected family. They have parents who went to that institution. They were born into an educated situation. They lived in a safe neighborhood that allowed them to learn. For me, one of the many criteria that was not about my personal, hardworking, you know, academic achievement was my skin color. And why is that any different than the other things that none of us choose that get us an advantage in life? So those were the personal things. But I also had, I think, later in life, in, in my 30s, um, academic experiences that led me to more strongly fall on the pro affirmative action side. Can you tell us a bit more about those? One was learning about structural racism and learning about how racism is baked into laws and society, and that impacts where we live and our salaries and our opportunities. And the second was understanding admissions at an academic level and realizing that factors that we consider to be objective, like the SATs, are inherently flawed. When we see that there is a persistent gap between racial minority students and white students in test scores, most of us who, you know, I would say are not extremely racist would say, wow, there must be a problem here. And with your education wonk hat on, what do you make of the argument that says actually this is intervening at the wrong end? That if you want to narrow these disparities, actually really want to concentrate your work earlier on in the child's life and that trying to make such a big part of the intervention at 18 is just too late. I actually agree with that. I think that this is too late in the process to be worrying about it. But the reality is that when you say that, there's two things that are problematic. One is that if we now begin, let's say we actually do begin amazing pre-kindergarten interventions and everybody has equal access to a brilliant education, you've now just lost 14 years of children to no longer being properly educated and no longer having access at any point in their career. And secondly, this is depressing, but I am just not confident we are going to have these types of systems ever implemented in an equal way. Parents with advantages and resources are always going to throw them at their children, at least in American society, and or I should say in the rich world where we highly value that in a parent. So we need to, we will always have to consider these things unless we're in a society that is absolutely, truly equal. And that is not likely to happen anytime soon. Charlotte, we're going to get on to what the Supreme Court is thinking and the cases before it in a little bit. But before we get there, could you begin by outlining what you think the strongest arguments for affirmative action are? I mean, Tamara made some of them there, but there there are some others as well, right? Yeah, well, to pick up on what Tamara said, I think there are two criticisms that are levied against affirmative action that I don't really think make sense. It doesn't make sense to do away with affirmative action because white people are jerks about it and assume a person of color is less worthy of their place in college. It also doesn't make sense to do away with affirmative action because 
you think you need more attention to K to 12 education. It's not an either or. And so I think when you're trying to consider the merits of affirmative action, one is whether a diverse university is a goal worth striving for. Are there educational merits to having racial diversity in addition to the other types of diversity, socioeconomic diversity, um, geographic diversity, different types of diversity that colleges consider? Um, In the original Supreme Court case in 1978 that, that affirmed affirmative action's legality, Lewis Powell wrote that, quote, it's not too much to say that the nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to the ideas and mores of students as diverse as this nation of many people. And so the first question is whether you agree with that, right? If you do generally agree with that, the question is how to go about achieving it. And if you look at the data for what states have tried to do as alternatives to affirmative action in the states where voters have banned affirmative action by uh, ballot initiatives, the things that they've tried to do in place of affirmative action haven't worked as well. So California and Texas were among the states to say they would admit the top X percent of a given high school's graduates to public universities. The logic there is that it is meritocratic. And because you're choosing from a wide range of high schools that are themselves racially segregated, you're going to end up um, achieving some of the goals of affirmative action. The data suggests that those policies weren't as effective as affirmative action in making colleges uh, more representative of the makeup of students who who are high school graduates, for instance. So the gap widened after affirmative action was scrapped. So those are some reasons, both qualitative and then quantitative in terms of the policies that were put forward as alternatives, why people would point to affirmative action as a policy that should stay. And Idris, how about the other side of that, you know, the side that the plaintiffs take in these cases before the court? Can you give us the, in your mind, the strongest arguments on the other side? I think the basic argument of fairness is is the most powerful. If we believe that people are to be judged on an individual basis, then we shouldn't be awarding um, huge benefits on the basis of membership and group identities. There's so many issues to, to take a look at, but I mean, one to start with is how important it is for elite institutions, which is where all of the effort is focused, to be perfectly representative of the states or, or the country. You have to believe in a sort of trickle-down theory that representation at these levels motivates in some way the median African-American, the median Hispanic person. And I don't think that it does that. I think that this is a benefit that that largely accrues to people who are already within this sort of uh, scope of African-Americans. They're already the most advantaged. Already the most advantaged are the ones who are going to be going to Harvard or University of North Carolina, two of the places that, that we're looking at today. We have had affirmative action in this country for several decades. And if you look at the material circumstances, the black-white wealth gap has not changed. The black-white income gap is fairly constant over time. So when we say that affirmative action is necessary in order to make a difference, what is the evidence that it has made substantial difference in the lives of the median African-American person and not just for people at sort of the top tail of, of the distribution? This entire discussion fetishizes racial differences. We don't talk very much at all about the fact that at Princeton, for example, there are more students from the top 1% of the income distribution than there are from the bottom 60%. There is very little attention to socioeconomic diversity um, at all of these places. And, you know, 
the universities frankly don't care that much about it because what matters, what they put on a brochure is the fact that they are representative racially. They don't put on their brochures the fact that a huge proportion of this of their school student bodies come from families that are making $500,000 or so. I'm really interested that you guys disagree on this because I think you probably agree on sort of 80 to 90% of things. And this is why this is such a good discussion. I have to say myself, I flip-flopped all over the place on this. I began with Tamara's original view when I moved to the US that discriminating on the basis of race in, in 2013, which was when I moved, was just plain odd. But then as I did more reporting on racial disparities in America and particularly the African-American experience, I became more open to the idea that affirmative action, while imperfect, um, might be necessary. And I think now I've changed again for a couple of reasons. One is that you know, when you look at what's happening in college admissions, it does look very much like one consequence of affirmative action in elite colleges is there's a kind of de facto quota on Asian Americans, basically Asian American entrance to university seems to be held down artificially. And I just find that very uncomfortable and I'm not comfortable defending it. And the other is just that affirmative action at colleges is is not very popular, including among African-Americans. So I've changed my mind on this a bunch of times. I'll probably change my mind again by the end of this podcast. This is a debate that I think we're not going to settle here, but it is such an interesting one. We'll find out about the man who coined the term affirmative action in a moment. First, though, your usual reminder, the only way to read everything from The Economist is, of course, to subscribe. Idris, what did you particularly like in this week's issue that you've read already? The cover story on what to make of markets and their wild swings and what might happen if there is a crash. I especially liked reading. Charlotte, how about you? What's your favorite bit this week? Our coverage of the war over chips has been really, really good, um, led by colleagues in Europe. But it, it, it's fantastic thinking about the ways in which different countries and industries are trying to get a leg up on um, strategic goods generally, but particularly among the chip makers. It's been fascinating. So I definitely refer people to our piece this week in the business section. Some of our British listeners may think you're talking about fries. This is one of those transatlantic differences, but you're talking about semiconductors, right? If there was a global war to secure access to French fries, that also would be fascinating. But that's not what I'm talking about. Thank you for the clarification. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Amid the clink of champagne flutes and snatches of Washington gossip, Hobart Taylor Jr. passed down the receiving line. He wasn't there for the boyish president-elect who dropped in to press the flesh for a while, but for his fellow Texan, vice president-elect Lyndon B. Johnson. It was January 1961, two days before John F. Kennedy's inauguration, and the Texas State Society had packed a DC hotel to celebrate their favorite son. Hobart Taylor Jr., an African-American attorney and LBJ donor, was there at the vice president-elect's request. As they shook hands, Johnson asked him to come by his new offices soon. He wanted Taylor to look over the draft of an executive order to set up the President's Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity, whose aim would be to ensure federal contractors hired staff fairly. Taylor made a few changes to the substance, 
but his greatest contribution to Executive Order 10925 and to history was the addition of a single word. They had a provision there that said, each employer shall take action, Taylor was to say in a 1967 interview. I said, well, look, let's try to put something else in there. We'll put affirmative. I was torn between positive and affirmative, and I decided affirmative on the basis of alliteration. President Kennedy issued the order in March 1961, the first known use of the phrase affirmative action. A month later, he spoke at the Committee on Equal Employment Opportunities' first meeting. LBJ was its chair, and Hobart Taylor Jr., the special counsel. I'm hopeful and confident that from this time forward, the committee will exercise the great powers given to it by the executive order to presently remove from government employment and work performed for the government every trace of discrimination because of race, creed, color, or place of national origin. On a windy day in June 1965, and now president, Lyndon Johnson gave the commencement address to graduating students at Howard University, a historically black college in Washington, D.C. If Hobart Taylor Jr. coined the term, it was LBJ who, to this day, has given the best explanation of what affirmative action sought to achieve. Freedom is not enough. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus, it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. And this is the next and the more profound stage of the battle for civil rights. For supporters of affirmative action, we're still in that stage. Its opponents argue that affirmative action itself is not fair that in helping some citizens walk through the gates of opportunity, the same gates are shut to others. Whether the Supreme Court strikes down race-conscious admissions policies or not, it's a debate that will continue as long as there's racial inequality in America. Charlotte, of course, this story doesn't start with LBJ, the college admissions part of the story, at least. Before the 60s, there's a whole prehistory of colleges making choices about who they admit based on things other than academic aptitude. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Because that is relevant to the lawsuits that are before the Supreme Court at the moment in, in a way that we'll get to in a bit. Well, there's a great book that was written over a decade ago called The Chosen, which is about admissions in college and access to elite colleges as a as a gateway towards the upper echelons of American power. But if you look at Harvard as an example, it had at one time just a straightforward entrance exam. And Harvard deemed in the earlier part of the 20th century that that entrance exam was admitting too many Jews. And so it changed its admissions policy 
to put more emphasis on subjective qualities, which included character and fitness. And the result was that they were able to diminish the number of Jews and raise the number of non-Jewish white people who were admitted. The current policy is actually, you know, a clear descendant of that at Harvard, where they're using subjective criteria that we can get into later, which I think are, are blatantly racist, actually, against Asian Americans. But if you look across other colleges as well, there have been swings over time. So in the 60s, the president of Yale, Kingman Brewster, had a goal of bringing more meritocratic admissions to the university. And one of the things that's complicating, to Idris's point around the importance of, of not just admitting wealthy kids, is what do you do when a pure meritocratic system is beneficial towards rich kids, right? So rich kids have much higher SAT scores than those whose parents make 40000 to 60000 a year. And so even with just a pure meritocratic lens, you can end up in some instances advantaging the wealthiest Americans, even leaving aside the question of race. So I I don't think really that there's a very straightforward answer for how to deal with this problem if you acknowledge that it is a problem, which is itself a debate. And so that's why I think you see so much disagreement on both the nature of what we're trying to achieve with college admissions and the mechanism for achieving that. And Idris, this is a debate in America and it has been for a long time, but it's not just in America, right? A lot of other countries with wide racial disparities, places like Brazil, South Africa, looked at what was set up when LBJ was president and thought, okay, we've got our own huge racial disparities. We need to do something about that and have copied elements of affirmative action. Actually, in some cases, they they predate LBJ as well. So in India, for example, in the Constitution, it's set out in the Constitution that was written in 1949, a system of quotas, which it maintained would be phased out over 10 years. That has not been the case. And in fact, what has happened is that the, uh, the system of quotas has only expanded over time. It's a category that they call other backwards classes, um, OBCs, uh, which initially encompassed uh, Dalits or untouchables, um, as they're sometimes called, and is now expanded to include Muslims and has now gone to such an extent that it covers more than half of the population. In South Africa, post-apartheid, a system of affirmative action was put into place, which has just been rendered meaningless uh, because more than 95% of South Africans are covered by these sorts of benefits now. Okay, well, that takes us up to the present day. And in the present day, it seems overwhelmingly likely that the Supreme Court is about to ban affirmative action, race-based affirmative action in college admissions. So we'll be back in a moment to find out why. Steve Maisie writes about the Supreme Court for The Economist and has a faultless record or near faultless record in predicting how the court is going to rule in these kinds of controversial cases. So I asked him to explain the two cases that are about to come before the court. The reason there are two cases is to cover two legal bases. One is the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which applies to state institutions like UNC Chapel Hill. And the other is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which covers private institutions. So that's the Harvard case. And both cases tackle a question about a longstanding method of doing admissions at many institutions where highly qualified candidates might be given a tip based on a few factors, including race, 
in order to build a class that is broadly diverse. The Harvard suit alleges that Harvard gives tips to black and Hispanic students at the expense of Asian American applicants whose identity serves to make it less likely that they will get in. It, they say it isn't a thumb on the scale. Uh, they write in their brief, it's more like an anvil on the scale. They show that Asians were admitted to Harvard at a fairly consistent rate of 19 or 20 percent of, of the class each year from uh, 2009 until 2018, even though the Asian applicant pool was growing which may be a sign the college was artificially capping the number of seats available to Asians. Steve, can you tell me a bit more about the precedents that the court has already set on affirmative action? I remember there was the Fisher case in Texas a few years ago that you wrote about for us. What would it be overturning if it went the other way? Well, those precedents go back to 1978. The Baki case involved uh, a white man named Alan Baki who applied to the medical school at the University of California at Davis. He was rejected, and he blamed the med school's policy of reserving 14 spots among its 100 seats for racial minorities. The court did an interesting thing in the Baki case. It voted five to four to strike down that that quota policy, saying it was inconsistent with both the Civil Rights Act and with the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution um, because it was too rigid. But they also voted 5-4 to say that a more subtle version of race consciousness where race is just a plus factor, that is one factor among many, that that is consistent with the Constitution and the law. So the idea has been since 1978 that schools may be race conscious in order to serve what what has been um, until now um, known as a compelling governmental interest of fostering student diversity in their student bodies. So that was 1978. And then the case that you just mentioned, John, Fisher versus University of Texas in 2016, which was another razor thin win for race conscious affirmative action. Every time that the court has upheld race consciousness, it's been by a single vote. The fact that the justices have decided to take these cases, to hear these cases, when, of course, the court could have chosen not to, does that make you think that they're preparing to do away with affirmative action? Or or is it not as simple as that? It seems like it's almost a lock in this case. It's hard to imagine why the justices would agree to hear these cases if they didn't think there were at least five votes, maybe six, to overrule the the three precedents from the past four decades. So the justices won't hear these cases until October at the earliest when the next term begins. But while they're coming down the track, there's also been this other big court news, which you've written about already, Justice Breyer's retirement. What do you make of the process to replace him with Joe Biden saying that he's going to appoint an African-American woman to the court no matter what? Is that affirmative action or would you call it something else? I don't think, I mean, it might be a type of affirmative action, but it's, it's very different. Uh, it's a very different sort if it is classified along those lines. Because here, right, that we have no applicants to a position. This is a, a Supreme Court vacancy that a president gets to nominate a successor for. But no one has or can claim to be aggrieved for not getting tapped for that role, right? And there's there's also been quite a few other presidents who have engaged in similar identity-based selections. 
going back to Ronald Reagan, who announced he would put the first woman on the bench when he chose Justice O'Connor back in the 80s. Although the elder President Bush didn't say he wanted to choose a black justice to replace Thurgood Marshall, clearly when he chose Clarence Thomas, that was one of the things he was thinking. And President Trump, when he was contemplating whom to choose as the successor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, announced he wanted a woman for that role. So there's a fairly strong precedent for considering identity, and I think there's good reason for that. We've had 115 Supreme Court justices, only two of them black, only four women. It seems like not a radical idea for Joe Biden to say, maybe the first black woman on the court would be a good idea. And there are so many very talented black women who could fill that role that it doesn't seem like you're compromising anything. Idris, we'll get on to discussing those cases before the court in a second. But before then, I know you have a different view on whether it was the right thing or a good thing for Joe Biden to say that he would nominate an African-American woman to the court. Can you explain that quickly before we get on to the cases before the court? It it would, of course, be fantastic for the first African-American woman to be on the bench, and it would be historic and laudable. But when Joe Biden pre-specified the race and gender of his appointee without any consideration of what that person's jurisprudence would be, you know, I, I think that diminishes the historicity of that decision. So it would have been preferable, in my view, to have simply nominated someone who was record-breaking rather than commit to it in a way that I find really just off-putting. I think that we could debate the messaging around this appointment for a long time. But I think that one thing that it underlines, which is relevant to our discussion of affirmative action in the setting of college admissions, is that affirmative action as practiced is hugely crude and imperfect. So if you look at the litigation, both as it relates to UNC, the University of North Carolina, and as it relates to Harvard, sometimes it's crude informally. So there were chats that were part of the litigation from UNC, chats among admissions officers that put this in high relief. So you have an admissions officer chatting to another quote, I just opened a brown girl who's an 810, end quote, they're referring to her SAT, but all kinds of discourse like that among the admissions officers. At Harvard, it was more formally crude, frankly. So in an analysis of tens of thousands of candidates, Harvard consistently gave Asian American applicants low scores on likability, on positive personality, on traits like, quote unquote, widely respected. And that data just suggests Racism. I mean, that just is a discriminatory policy against Asian Americans. There are other ways in which I'd point out the Harvard admissions criteria were skewed and, you know, that we can think about when people rail against affirmative action on the basis of race as being a bad idea. You know, the universities also want applicants from all 50 states. They want athletes. Legacies have an enormous advantage in applying. So there are all kinds of ways in which The admissions criteria at these universities is deeply flawed. And there's a reason why Harvard fought very hard to keep this secret. Universities don't want everyone to know. They don't want to peek under the hood because when you do peek under the hood, it's pretty ugly. So it looks quite likely, as Steve said, that the court is going to either strike down affirmative action or narrow it to an extent where it's unrecognizable from what is currently practiced uh, at several 
elite colleges in America, several colleges full stop in America. What would it look like if that were to happen? Charlotte, a bit earlier, you were talking about those states that had had banned affirmative action in state colleges. There have been some ballot initiatives on that. What are the, what are the practical consequences of getting rid of this thing? Well, I think it will vary quite a lot by state and by institution. I think that what you've seen in some of the states where you've banned the practice is they came up with these alternatives that were intended to achieve some of the same goals around admitting people from from high schools, guaranteeing admissions from people who are at the top of their high schools across all different kinds of high schools. That can help boost the representation of racial minorities in universities to some degree. And so I think that colleges may try to admit proxies for race that will be of varying efficacy. There are ways, for example, of socioeconomic and class-based affirmative action or whatever you want to call it, that consider more clearly the circumstances of the school that a student is attending and looks at their performance relative to the resources that they had. And that will obviously overlap with with racial disparities quite a bit because, as we know, African-Americans and Hispanics are more likely to be, and Native Americans are more likely to be poor. And so uh, a system that judges based more on relative performance, um, according to resources, I think could accomplish that. Also, this debate, again, is on the sort of most elite colleges and is not the kind of place that the typical student or even one out of every 10 students is even going to be considering. And while this is the thing that we sort of spend the most time on, we spend very little time thinking about the fact that not enough African-American and Hispanic students upon graduating are going to any college at all. I think one of the reasons this is hard is that America has wide racial disparities. We've written about them. And it The country doesn't have a great set of policies to narrow those disparities. There are a whole load of things you could do. Idris has written about them in the past. We've talked about them on the podcast. You know, the child tax credit, which has just lapsed, was a great one. And affirmative action, you know, is a policy that exists to narrow racial disparities. It's an imperfect one. uh, And I think on balance, I'd be favoring getting rid of it in favor of the kind of class-based affirmative action or income-based affirmative action that, that Idris uh, has outlined there. But it is an actual policy that's designed to narrow disparity, and we don't have a whole load of others. And so getting rid of the, the kind of one thing feels unfair, even if I think that's what the court's going to do. And I think ultimately it might be the right thing to do so long as it's replaced uh, with something that, that works a bit better. Okay, let's move on to the quiz. Charlotte, no Fasman this week, so it's a big week for you. However, I regret to inform you, you probably know this already, that Idris was on Jeopardy when he was 14, 15, and, and is an absolute quiz ninja. So we've replaced one black belt with, with another. I'm very comfortable with my role in these quizzes. Ask away. <laughs> you actually won some money, Idris, on Jeopardy, which I was impressed by. You won like $10,000. Yeah, yeah. It uh, mostly went... What did I spend it on? I think I think I bought a fancy espresso machine because I was quite in a. As a fourteen-year-old, v- <laughs> yeah, sophisticated. Yeah, not not with all the money. It's we still have it. It still works. Um, so it's pretty good investment. But I met Trebek, which is which is very cool. 
He mostly talked about scotch, though, which uh, he probably shouldn't have, to, like teenagers. <laughs> Even one from Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, particularly one from Kentucky, yeah. if it's scotch, I yeah. should have said. Okay, question one. The Economist first mentioned retiring Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer in a November 1979 profile of Senator Edward Kennedy. Kennedy was, at the time, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and we noted that, quote, he took Mr. Stephen Breyer to be chief counsel from Harvard's law faculty. Question. Ted Kennedy served in the Senate from 1962 until his death in 2009, placing him fourth on the list of longest-serving senators. He's sandwiched between a senator who switched from the Democrats to Republicans in 1956, who comes in in third place, and a Democrat who's set to retire this year in fifth place. Can you name them? Well, Byrd, and I have no idea who the mid-century one was. I think Leahy is the oh, one Byrd died. He died. Bird died. Was it Specter? Arlen Specter? Did he? Was he the switcher? He's too no. recent. He's too recent. I don't know. Okay, I, I think Leahy is is one. Oh, um, what, uh, they have a Senate building named after him. Is that right? Um, Dirksen? Isn't there a Senate Dirksen building? There is a Dirksen building, but it wasn't Dirksen. Patrick Leahy is correct. So a point for that. It was Strom Thurmond, the oh, famous. Yeah, yeah. A segregationist who represented South Carolina from 1954 to 2003. And of course, as part of that wave of Democrats who switched the Republican Party as part of the Southern strategy. Question two, Ted Kennedy's Massachusetts Senate seat had been his eldest brother's. But why wasn't Ted considered to fill JFK's seat after his election to the presidency in 1960? And why did he instead wait until the 1962 election to run? He was too young. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say he was in university, or was it related to um, Chappaquidditch stuff? When did that happen? He was still in the Senate, I think, because it derailed his presidency, presidential campaign. Right. Was he too young? Yeah, maybe he was too young. The answer is he was too young. You have to be 30 to run for the Senate. And Ted Kennedy wasn't 30 until February 1962. And so he had to wait for a couple of years before before he could run. Um, you both did very well. I think Idris, in keeping with his reputation as a uh, black belt of quizzes, just beat you, Charlotte. But that was a very good performance all round and, and better than I would have mustered without the answers in front of me. OK, well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you also to our producer, Harriet Noble, and to our sound engineer, Nicola Rofast. If we haven't sated your appetite for American politics podcasts, then please do go and listen to the Economist Asks podcast this week in which Anne McElvoy, our colleague, interviews Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. If you like this podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. <laughs>